0: Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at infoprojectmedtech.com. At if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast focused on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Lean R-A-Q-A. Michelle Lott and the Lean team helps clients recognize regulatory and quality issues aren't a burden, but they are strategic advantages when used properly. These experts strip away misdirected activities so you can focus on what really matters, winning in the marketplace. Check them out at leanraqa.com. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loracella and our guest Bruce Lakorowick at Galen Robotics discussed the closing of their Series A Capital Raise, the importance of relationships when raising money, why he moved the company to Maryland, oversubscribing, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Bruce Wayne Lakorowick. Or as we like to call him in the industry, I'm the Batman.
1: It is fun. I usually say it's an honor or it's wonderful. This is going to be fun. I'm so glad to have you on the MedTech Money podcast series, which is powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. You and I, we've actually had a lot of fun this year. You were in Houston with us at the Houston event that we hosted at Texas Medical Center a couple months ago at this point. We've seen each other around the world in a few different countries at this point. You brought me up to speed on your raise that we're obviously going to be digging into this year, and it was not all that long ago on November 1st of 2022 that the press release came out that Galen Robotics has closed its Series A, and we'll get into some more nuances of what that really means um, and what also you are continuing on to do. But want to say thank you very much for joining this. You are a friend of mine, and I'm honestly excited about this one. We're going to have a lot of fun. So as you know, I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs and investors from around the world, and I've discovered that there's no silver bullet or magic or specific formula about how people raise or even invest capital medtech my goal here is i wanted to extract your insights to demystify this process and help medtech innovators benefit from the information and we have an audience of medtech entrepreneurs and investors but what i want to do is share your stories and advice to help our listeners learn from you and more specifically for the first-time founders or even ceos who have no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital so i thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced guys like you. And before we get into who you are, before we get into Galen Robotics, the company that you're leading, I want to ask you and open up the conversation with a few warming up questions just to kind of get inside your head a little bit. So let's just jump into it. The first one I want to throw your way is, in your opinion, what is the lifeblood of a medtech startup or what keeps startups alive?
2: It's a warm-up. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, obviously, everybody's going to say cash. You know, I think anybody in, in the industry will say, you know, the lifeboat is always cash. You As long as you have cash, you have, you have a company. But I think it goes deeper. You know, you've got to have a suite of core. You're going to have to have a team that um, knows how to work together in the good times and bad times. And so... Um, I think any entrepreneur out there, if they or he he or she thinks that you'll never have a problem, you're fooling yourself. You're always going to hit a a bump in the road. You're always going to fall off a cliff. So there's always going to be an issue, um, whether it be funding, whether it be hiring, whether it be, in our case, uh, not in our case, but uh, uh, it could be FDA. It could be... uh, 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 customers not accepting your product. So it's a lot of, it's a combination of everything. Uh, It's not just one. Uh, The old guard will always say, well, if you don't have cash, you're out of business. Okay, well, tell me something new. Uh, (laughs) Tell me what I don't know. Right. Um, And so, you know, it goes beyond that because a lot of companies, as you know, geo have tons of cash that went out of business. So it's, it's
1: more than just the cash that uh, makes these companies tick. And you mentioned some hardships. We're going to get into your backstory once we finally get there, but you have done this before. And in my question to you and your experience over the years, even as even an investor, what is the hardest part about building a medtech startup?
2: Uh, It's getting your first 10 to 15 folks um, that are your basic team. You know, if you're a professional, I mean, look at what the uh, NFL does. Uh, They'll bring 125 uh, guys into training camp and they'll cut down to 53. And so, um, you know, we can't, we don't have the luxury of doing that. We can't hire 25 people and cut. So the first 10 hires are extremely critical, um, that uh, each guy uh, picks up his own ore, uh, each guy knows what he's doing. Um, This is not a place you come for on-the-job training. You you have to know what the hell you're doing uh, to make this thing work. And then from there, uh, each one of those 10 have to then hire and build their own teams uh, that can go and and do what's going on. But uh, med tech's no different than high tech. I text the same thing, you got to get your first 10 guys in, you got to get your funding in, Uh, but uh, it all comes down to your customer, you know, Uh, and if you don't understand your customers' needs and wants, um, you're going to have the best team in the world, you have a a, a ton of cash in the bank, and uh, you ain't going to make it, and so it all comes down to really understanding what what it is and what gap you're filling. you know in my uh, my history uh, we we've hit the target and, and there are times we didn't and, uh, and and so it's really a, it's one of those things where when you don't when you miss your target one time you never miss it again uh, and those are those are hard lessons to learn so
1: and, and actually I just did a podcast but also had an experience with another entrepreneur who I was going back and forth with emails and calls in real time. And they were just about to do their first in man. And there was a simple mistake where they couldn't consent the patient and they were all the way, they were, they were on their way traveling to the site. And this was not, it it was outside the United States. It was, this was like a deal, a big deal. Um, And the patient never was able to be consented. And so they missed their first in man. And it was one of these things where the CEO reflected and he's like, it was such a simple thing and it will never happen again. And it's now cost us 60 days in terms of development or moving forward and promises to investors, et cetera. So to your point, you miss something, whether it's silly or not silly, but very big or important for the company. And it's a hard lesson for you. It's unfortunate for the company and all the effects, but uh, it'll never be done again. So thank you for that. This is a two-piece question. The next one. Um, And even if you go off on a tangent, come back around and make sure you answer the two piece. But what is the best and what is the worst piece of advice that you've received on raising capital?
2: Best advice I ever got was uh, um, be prepared for a lot of no's, Uh, be prepared to kiss a lot of frogs and be prepared to um, have your ego in check. Um, a lot of these investors will, will pass for whatever reason. Um, especially if you're a newcomer CEO or you don't have a history. Now, my history, I'm a crossover, I'm a crossover CEO. So I've come over, i cross crossed over from high tech to med tech. So um, if I were to start a, med tech, a high tech company now, I'd have no problem because I'd go back to my high tech guys that invested in me before and Bruce Hawaii and how much you need and, love you and all that stuff that didn't happen. So when I crossed over the aisle in some of these venture firms to the med tech guys, uh, I had no history. You know, they're going, yeah, it was just a number on a sheet in their partners meeting. And uh, who are you? You know, I don't know who you are. And the other partners go, Oh, Bruce is great. You know, he did it then he gave us return, you know, and now he's doing now he's doing a med tech deal. So um, so that was uh, that's a little bit of a tangent. Um, the, the worst advice uh, was to go to the really big firms first, um, and the worst advice was to uh, go to the big, big firms first, and, uh, um, uh, and w- w- the problem was you don't have your story down. You don't have your story down, you don't have your pitch down, you don't have your team down, you don't have your And so you you need to work with some of the smaller venture guys first to uh, be drilling down before you go, you know, start walking down Sand Hill Road. Um, And so that was early on in my career where I went to some of these bigger guys and and I just got slammed. Uh, I didn't have, uh, um, uh, there were just so many holes in my plan. There was just so many holes in my pitch. And uh, that was a long time ago. You know, again, you learn this once, but uh, the really good advice is relationship. Guys will invest in people that they like. And if you're able to come across uh, with some knowledge and able to really you know, come across the fact that um, I've done this before, I'm headed to this market, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it, and you're a decent person, you know, chances are you'll get funded. But uh, you know, in today's market, it's it's kind of crazy, right? You've got a lot of uh, uncertainty. You've got a war going on. You've got recession. You've got you know inflation. All those factors uh, play into the heads of these investors. And um, uh, the biggest advice I can give you know to any any entrepreneur is: uh, these guys look for a reason to say no. So uh, as long as you don't give them a the reason to say no, you're good. So uh, that's, that's really how the games played. Uh, you, you have to just make sure you have everything covered when you talk to these guys.
1: I love that line about they're looking for reasons to say, no, I, I talk with a lot of early stage startups, especially, and, and when they're either pursuing capital internationally or in the United States, whatever it may be, you're looking at every facet and, you don't want them to have an easy no because you want to at least have them say the hard no's and get them that far. Uh, but making them have at least an easy no or not having all your stuff together in a line to actually have them progress to the harder no's, that's what will make your life a lot more challenging when you're raising capital. So um, my next one is really a softball. It's really more about understanding you and, and, and just free-flowing information that you can share with the audience listening in. You're obviously an accomplished executive, high-tech, med-tech at this point. What book would you recommend our audience to read and why? It could be any topic or
2: book. One Minute Manager. What one is it? One Minute Manager.
1: One Minute Manager. You didn't even have to hesitate. Why? What's so good about it? It's, uh, um,
2: it's just a great management book. It's a great... Um, it's very simple that breaks down uh, basic principles of, of interpersonal relationships and how you manage. Um, and I, I, I read that a long time ago. The other one is Kahneman's uh, Think, uh, Think Slow, Think Fast. So yeah. that's another one that I, I really like, uh, whether you're system one, system two thinker. Yeah. So that's, that's really, uh, those two books I really, really do like.
1: That's a good one. Next question, from your perspective, what is the job of a CEO and what is the biggest challenge of a CEO? Once again, for a medtech startup, but your definition of CEO and what's the biggest challenge? Well,
2: CEO, you're always the leader, but you're also the major fundraiser. You're the biggest, you're the cheerleader. You're the one that's ultimately responsible. And so the first 10 guys you hire just understand, you know, um, if things go right, they get the credit. If things go wrong, you get it. You get that. So, um, you're always the one that's going to be the, the ultimate um, coach that um, put the player on the field. And the player does well, everybody's a hero. If the player doesn't do well, you're 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 a goat. So, uh, at the same time, the, the you know team building is probably one of the biggest uh, shortfalls of a lot of entrepreneurs. So, uh, building really good, solid teams that um, are resilient. So resiliency is probably one of the biggest things I think the CEO needs to have. It needs to instill in his people that regardless of what hits you, regardless of what comes your way, uh, you have to be resilient and keep on going. Uh, you can't just throw your hands up and say whatever. I mean, we're an FDA now. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have our fingers crossed, you know, that we're down the road here. And uh, when we don't know what we don't know, meaning you know, they come back with a question that you know, uh, moment of question where we just, well, we didn't think about that or whatever. So we're we're always on guard, but at the same time we're, you know, I have to continue to be uh, everybody uh, boys and make sure they continue to move forward, and that's that's pretty much what. Uh, it's like a Lou Holtz type coach. We got to just continue to you know, move forward on
1: this. I like this next question. It's fun. If you had a magic stick, what would you change about the capital raising process from an entrepreneurial perspective? If you could change anything,
2: I would, I would demand that every venture partner has in every uh, um, Venture firm has operating experience. These guys coming out of Harvard or Stanford or whatever, with their with their MBAs, and they go to Alex Brown or they go to some consulting firm, and then all of a sudden they go into a consulting firm or go into a venture firm. They don't know anything of what it is like in just my shoes. They don't know anything about operations. They don't know anything about sales. They don't know anything about anything. They just they don't know anything. And I think they are the worst people on these boards. Uh, they give they give the worst advice. And I've had to go in to straighten out a number of companies back when the dot com bubble hit, and um, and the board members of the venture firm, uh, you know, the CEO said, well, "I listen to you know my board. I listen to these guys, and I go." <laughs> These guys, don't, you know, these guys don't even know, they never, they never ran a business, They've never been in a business uh, of operation. They've just been in finance. finance. So uh, some of the worst advice comes from those type of folks uh, that I found because uh, they're not operational based. Now, the best firms have the operating guys in there that they learned their lessons a long time ago. So some of these venture guys are really good. They have, they have a long history of, of successes. Uh, they can sit on a board and they can give you solid advice. Uh, and, they can, and they know what it's like during the ups and downs of building a company. Those are the best guys. And those are the guys that I always look for.
1: If you were not a med tech entrepreneur, meaning you're, you were no longer running Galen Robotics or for that matter, even sticking around in this industry, there was no limits on, like we're we're getting sci-fi here. Like money didn't mean anything. It was just like Bruce in his most pure form of enjoyment. If you weren't a medtech entrepreneur, what would you be doing now instead?
2: I would be a, I'd probably be a venture guy uh, doing early stage startups. Uh, Especially out of uh, like the Johns Hopkins out here. I mean, there's so much talent coming out and so many good, so much good technology coming out of there. That is not funded. Um, so many two guys and a dog with an idea, and uh, they're looking for the first check of 100 grand or 150 grand to you know go away and do their prototype. Uh, that is where I would I would want to play and then take it all the way through. Um, so that's well, that would be my that is my next gig after Kalen would be doing it. So
1: um, awesome. That'll be fun. I'll, I, I'm excited to. Well, my my next question for you now is, what does the name of your company mean? But when you do get to your next venture fund, I'll ask you the same thing when I do in a second interview with you. But the next the next question for you right now is, what is the name of your company? Or I should say, what does the name of your company mean? And is there a story behind it? So Galen Robotics, why Galen? Why I mean, there's these robotics companies with various names. What's the story behind your name? What does it mean?
2: Galen uh, was the project name of the robot back in 2012 here at Hopkins so that was the name of this particular project and um, it was named uh, after uh, um, a surgeon or a a surgeon back in uh, the days of the gladiators where uh, back then the uh, autopsies were illegal so the only way that a doctor or anybody can see what's going on is after these guys came in all cut up they can do you know they can see what's going on and what the anatomy is like and so uh, and galen uh, wrote the very first uh, diagrams of the anatomy of the human body and so that happened in uh, 129 a.d so artemis galen this whatever you know he's a greek guy um is 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 taught to every med school uh, guy and gal uh, today. So he's kind of the original guy that started a lot of this. Um, we wanted to have a different name. We wanted uh, something with a bot in it, sexy bot, robot, whatever, you know. So and Dave, my partner, tried to look for the uh, uh, domain, and everything with bot in it's gone, and everything with surge is gone, and everything with. Um, so we just said, well, what about Galen? And what about, and so we tried Galen Surgical, and that was taken. Our Galen Therapeutics, that was taken. So robotics was open. So basically it was the domain that drove us to keep the... Uh, uh, and we looked a lot and we kept coming back to that one.
1: Love that. I Actually, I, I make a lot of those decisions myself where if they're available websites, that, that's ultimately how things get named. So <laughs> I love that story. It resonates with me. So... Bruce LeCowick, President and CEO of Galen Robotics. We're finally here. Before I even ask who you are, I, I want to have a little fun sidetrack story. What is your middle name? Wayne. so your your name is Bruce Wayne. That's right. so you're you're the Batman of medtech or, or or is is that how you brand yourself or what's going on there? You're looking at him. There's only one. <laughs> so for all those listening right now i actually do call bruce batman in person that's my my nickname for him but it's not certainly original throughout his life he's been known at that so i, I love having that we have an actual batman a superhero in our industry so we're, we're currently listening to batman of medtech bruce wayne lakorowick um <clears throat> tell us who you are where, where did you come from where have you spent your life? How did you build your academic career, your professional life, your career leading up to the point where you actually took over as president and CEO of Galen Robotics? So in other words, imagine all those sending in right now have never even heard your name, seen you. They've certainly seen Batman, so they can imagine what you may look like, but they don't know you. What's your backstory that allowed you to have all this experience to be president and CEO of Galen?
2: Well, I started off really early at, uh, 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 in, in consumer package goods. I uh, was Gamble, so I started with there, um, and then uh, I was schooled in the Midwest. I went to University of Dayton, and um, uh, moved to high tech uh, on a my my first headhunter call. My headhunter gave me a call and wanted me to move into uh, to a company that was really failing bad. And that was controlled Data. And this was late '80s. And uh, I went and became a, a, a VP over there uh, and uh, turned a division around. And then we were bought out by a, a Sequoia-backed company in, in Silicon Valley. So I went uh, So I went from Minneapolis to Silicon Valley uh, in the 90s. And then uh, uh, just caught the uh, startup bug. So there's a number of startups that I was with. Uh, I can't even remember, but, you know, uh, one sold to IBM, one sold to... Uh, 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 Microsoft. One sold to uh, DCC uh, in, uh, D- uh, D- uh, D- uh, DCC, DoCoMo in Japan. So we we uh, and I was a C- I was a, I was a VP all along in those areas. And then I my first CEO role was with uh, uh, a uh, uh, small company. Complete crash and burn. Uh, did everything wrong. Uh, spent, you know, got over my skis on spending and uh, hired the wrong people, so everything I said that you should be doing, I did, uh, and so the second one, uh, uh, we were able to uh, sell it off to. Uh, uh, maybe i but uh, my brain's gone gone south, me. and and uh, so, oh, uh, eBay, so we. Did a company called eBay, or did a company called uh Rayland, and Rayland at the time was uh, and it did an analytic, and then that was uh sold to eBay very early. Uh, and and that was during the dot com bubble bust, and so from that point on to 2010, uh, I was a venture consultant, I'd go into the problem children of all these venture firms. And I'd work with the CEOs, sometimes I'd a interim CEO, sometimes I would turn things around. So between uh, 2003 and 10, I, I was in 22 different companies, you know, helping turn those things around. And then um, uh, we did a, a deal with, uh, I became a, a friend of mine wanted me to take a look at this company uh, that was in Omaha. And so we looked at uh, 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 track searchable to time, and uh, so that was my first foray into medical. So I was a consultant there, uh, working with uh, the founder, uh, and we got a term sheet uh, out of J and J, yeah, out of J and J. And then um, when my contract was done, and so when our contract was done, well, Hopkins gave us a call uh, to run this particular robot uh, solution that they did, and that was 2016, 17. So that's I've been here ever since. So that's kind of the that's kind of the that's kind of the backstory.
1: That's who Batman is. Awesome. And Galen Robotics, you you alluded to it a little bit behind the name when we asked you that earlier. But robotics is a huge, sexy topic. It's been in the industry now at least well talked about for minimally a handful of years. But obviously. The majority of people have certainly heard of intuitive surgical. Um, if you're in the industry, you've heard of a lot more than that, but it's been a very sexy market, the surgical or medical robotics over the past, let's just call it 10 years. Um, in your opinion, tell us about Galen Robotics and the nuances, but in general about the robotics industry and what differentiates Galen and why you feel so strongly about it. So in essence, what is Galen Robotics, but tie it into the robotics market?
2: Well, there are a lot of robots out there right now. Geo, you've got, uh, the big kahuna is uh, the the big robot. Uh, It's been out for 22 years. It's in 6,000 installs. So uh, they, you know, a lot of where we're at today in robotics and and, and, uh, in medical is, really hats off to Intuitive. They're the ones that broke all the ice. They're the ones that got the hospitals to get used to it, the surgeons to start using it, the patients that started to want it. Um, And so uh, Intuitive gets the credit for all that. Now you have a ton of orthopedic uh, robots out there doing big bone uh, cutting, whether it be hip or knee or shoulder surgery. Um, Those are a lot of one trick ponies uh, that just do one or two things and that's it. Precision is not that great. I mean, it's there, but not to the point where we're at. We do what was what Hopkins developed that we licensed was a soft tissue, high precision, 75 micron uh, robot that holds the exact tools that the surgeon already owns. So um, there's no relearning, there's no retraining, there's no unlearning that a surgeon has to go through. So uh, basically they uh, take the tool they normally picked up, they attach it to the robot, hit the pedal, and they can uh, go to work. Now what that does, we give them a high level of stability, high level of of, uh, security in some cases, but then now that's tools being held by a robotic assistant. And so, and it's really designed for what is called narrow corridor surgery. So you're going down a, a tube or a port inside your brain or throat or your back. And so you have these, um, it's a completely different operation where the spine, the neuros, surgeons, the ENTs, uh, they're all right there on top of the patient. Uh, for lapro uh, or for uh, OBGYN surgeries, cortex uh, disease, you know the, the the Da Vinci is perfect, but it's designed where the surgeon sits over in the in the station uh, as a remote, and the robot is on top of the patient. Uh, totally two different designed uh, uh, robots, but we are hitting a market that really is untouched by any type of assisted devices at all, whether it's robotic or not. Um, whether it be a narrow ENT, soft spine, actually, uh, where they're doing uh, decompression surgeries and things like that. Uh, all those things are, are not being uh, addressed at all by anybody. So there's a lot of white space, a lot of open field for us to go and to take this robot out. So we can cross a lot of indications uh, in the future with what we're doing.
1: And I saw on the press release, which we're going to jump into the raise now, but there was this acronym that I honestly haven't seen before, and and it struck my eye, DSAS, Digital Surgery as a Service. What is that all about? I know what SAS is, but what is DSAS? Well,
2: our background is uh, software as a service, so in high tech. So uh, that's number one. Number two is When you see robots being sold today or any devices sold today, there's a capital charge that the hospital has to pay. And you figure some of these robots that are out there, the hospital has to pay anywhere from 600,000 on up to 2.4, which is the da Vinci. Um, And that goes through the back committees within these hospitals and and they have to figure out how much cash they have to spend and and all that. COVID changed a lot of it because of uh, the lack of, of uh, elective surgeries. So with the ICUs being filled with COVID patients, elective surgeries stopped. And so and you look at any elective surgeries, uh, p the l elective surgeries are the highest margin uh, where they make the most profit uh, of these hospitals. So when you have these hospitals now, they're just now getting back to their, they still haven't recovered their capital losses. So, um, and we've been told a number of times, yeah, you can come in and sell your robot, but you know, if there's cash left over, we'll buy it. Uh, and the sales cycle could be anywhere from six months to a year. And, uh, and so we felt, and a lot of other devices or uh, smaller devices are being sold as a service where you they charge a usage fee and a disposable. So uh, our robot is uh, cheap enough where we can actually place it uh, in these hospitals, charge a, uh, a, a usage fee, a disposable. Then in the future, we'll do an app store, just like the iPhone where the surgeon can call up different apps uh, for navigation or augmented reality or whatever they want and we can have that being charged on demand as a one-time shot. So um, we're giving the hospitals the option. If they wanna buy it on a capital expense, we have that price sheet. And if they wanna do it as a service, we have that. Uh, So we're making it easy for the hospitals to bring it in faster. Um, And we probably can place multiple units quicker in these hospitals, especially when they have 30, 40, surgeons uh in the in that one department and uh, one robot second service all so we, we we built that up and so we decided to brand it and we'll be the first company to launch uh as a service now our first robotic company to launch as a service every other company that's out there all the big guys and the smalls all charge a capital and that's the way they do it. um we have not built any capital into our PNL. we're not forecasting it um we're doing it all as a service we know that from our background in high we know how that game's played you know you gotta get your children worse in there you got everybody loving it you gotta get it locked in and then you can start charging more later but you gotta get you gotta get it in and you gotta get the surgeons using it so uh, that's our model and uh, hospitals love it uh, surgeons like it because they're going to get it quicker um we're launching three hospitals next year, uh Harvard, uh, medical, Stanford Medical, and, and Hopkins. Wow. And we'll we'll just work with those three and work out the bugs, uh, get the business model down, make sure everything's working the way it's supposed to work. And, and then we'll do a big series B uh, you know in 2024. And that's gas money. I mean we have 42 hospitals that we can go to right now, but it'd be foolish. So we're doing a very controlled soft launch next year. Congratulations Hopefully, we get
1: cleared. That's awesome! Congratulations on all that. Um, I, I and thank you for the backstory. So I want to take the rest of our time together and focus on the money aspect. This is ultimately called medtech money, and that's what we're going to focus on. Digging out the story, but also your advice and experience, so that we all can learn from you. Um, on November first, I'm looking at the press release now. It says Galen Robotics announces oversubscribed 15 million Series A to advance next phase in surgical robotics. So one thing that I didn't just say out loud, but I know from you and I and all of our communication and discussions is this idea that you started off in the Bay Area and now all of a sudden you're in Maryland. So I want to tell that story. I want to understand what Maryland has to do with this whole thing beyond the fact that this concept originally spun out of Johns Hopkins. But Talk about state money. That's one thing. And then just in general, I want to pull apart your closed round of $15 million, what you plan on doing, and, and the mechanics of raising capital, and whether you went to VCs, whether you raised from family offices, angels, et cetera. So we'll we'll dig in all, all of this for the remainder of our time together. The first thing is just give us the status right now so that we can wrap our heads around the rest of our conversation. Um, you took over and you're running Galen Robotics what is the status of closed money on Galen and what is the plans let's just say for the foreseeable future? So you closed your series a, did you do a seed round before that? Um, What's the next steps? And then obviously sequentially comes a series B just give us that concise line for right now so we can have the context and then we'll dig into the underneath the hood type stuff.
2: Well, we started off with a seed round back in 2018 and with uh, all plans to do our Series A in 2019, 2020. Um, so we had our seed round that carried us through all of that uh, 2018, 2019. Come 2019 December, um, we had a, we had a couple of very interested uh, venture guys, uh, uh, you know, put it in a again to telling us that they're sending us a term sheet. Um, Come January, February, 2020, COVID hit, um, and the VCs pulled back. Uh, so um, to go manage their portfolio. So again, you know, these venture guys, um, anything that's exterior in the uh, economy or whatever, you know, for new investments, they're gonna shore up, they're gonna shore that up, uh, or they're gonna shut that down, and then it's gonna shore up their own portfolios, uh, companies. So we continued our seed um, and we stayed with our seed uh, up until 2022, um, where we converted that into our Series A and then we brought in new capital on that. Uh, we actually closed it um, uh, in uh, October, uh, actually in the Q2 timeframe. Um, and so, uh, and then the re- press release came out in, in November. Um, and so that's, that's how that, that all went down. Um, the reason why we moved to Maryland, Maryland uh, approached us in 2019 with a proposal to move the company to, uh, to Baltimore. And it was a $10 million TIF package on top of a million-dollar grant package. Um, which we haven't pulled down. Um, and of course, I can't, I can't pull down TIP benefits because I'm not paying any tax so I'm not selling anything yet. So uh, we just kind of sat around and go, what's California giving us? So we packed up and moved our company here uh, in an opportunity zone uh, in Maryland. And so, uh, uh, and now this uh, the state approached us uh, with, with, uh, 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 with an opportunity to do a, a, a three to a five million dollar match. Um, and so we said, great, you know, we just did our close, uh, but the match has to be a look back of 60 days. So we can't use that. So we opened up a second round uh, on our A, uh, second close. Same term, same valuation, same everything. We just and another five. So it's five to get five. Um, and, uh, we have just about all of it, uh, circled right now. Um, and we have a number of, uh, venture guys in our data room rooting around. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just right now just waiting for, for a yes to come through and then we'll disclose the we'll close that second close. And then, then we go to the state for the match. And so that's really what we're doing. And that will take us out, uh, close to six quarters, a uh, year and a half. So that, that takes us all the way out to 2024, gets us in the hospitals, gets us our sales team in place, gets our clinical guys out there. Uh, and that sh- we should have enough evidence of that the, that the product's working, the model's working, the surgeons like it, that we can go and raise a bigger round. And then and then we can go to our other. Then we, go, then, we just, then we can just put the pedal down. That and go from there, but so that's kind of how it went down. But um, we had to call it an audible. I mean, you know, we we had all intentions of not having a seed round go that long, um, but we did. Uh, we didn't have any formal round or any formal pricing until we, we got our lead, uh, out of Menlo Park and um uh, got a term sheet and closed the thing. So, but that was. They got a, uh, COVID. didn't help uh, and it, it does get dicey out there when, when you see it reminded me of 2008 when the venture guys just disappeared uh, nothing was getting funded back in 2008 and 2009 uh, when the meltdown took place so um, you know, you, you, and, and that's the whole thing that you know we had experience with it I felt sorry for a lot of first-time CEOs going through that. Because uh, COVID did wreck a lot of companies,
1: uh, unfortunately. So you moved the company from San Francisco to Baltimore, and just to reiterate on that, there was an incentive to bring you out there originally, or is it, are you were you going back home because it spun out of Johns Hopkins? Because you mentioned that the state of Maryland approached you after you were already there. Was there an incentive to initially bring you out from California? No, no
2: we had all intentions of staying in California. Okay. We had no intentions of moving here at all. Um, So we had already formed a company. Uh, We already, you know, started to bring in our first, you know, seed money. Um, We were looking for uh, office space. Uh, We were, we were putting, you know, our first 10, 15 guys together. Um, And uh, Department of Commerce, you know, nudged me and said, hey, would you be interested in getting a proposal from us? And I said, yeah, well, sure. You know, I mean, whatever. You know, I kind of said something about someplace freezing me over, but yeah. I mean, I was in California for 28 years and you want to move where, Baltimore, come on. Uh, so uh, yeah, I can be bought, we can be bought. Uh, and so we moved. And uh, it's been, it's actually been a great experience. It's been a really great experience.
1: And that's my hopefully short mini tangent on this one is, you know, when we talk about med tech hubs, especially for capital intensive or engineering intensive systems, like a surgical robot, like what you guys are building, you know, when we talk about medical device hubs, we think of immediately Boston, Minnesota, and then at this point, California as a state, there's obviously sub hubs. We were just in Texas together, not all that long ago, there's a lot of stuff going on in Texas. But, you know, the obvious ones are right now, it's Boston, Minnesota, or Minneapolis, and uh, Northern and Southern California, even specifically Northern California. What is it like to be developing a intricate system, medical device regulated system in Maryland? How how does that work out for you guys?
2: It hasn't been that hard. Uh, We bring in a number of interns from Hopkins and University of Maryland every summer. Uh, and we put them with our engineers, and uh, and these guys are really good. And these guys come out of the master program, so out of the same lab, on the same I mean, the same professor, Professor Taylor, uh, handpicks a number of, of of intern students that we bring over, and um, we put them to work for three months, and we rate them and judge them, and, and if they're good enough when they graduate, we hire them. So that's been the backbone of the company, of, of, of hiring that quality of engineer. Um, we did leave one guy back in California um, as a backup in case we couldn't find a particular engineer or uh, open up a particular division that we couldn't find that talent here. Uh, Right now, we think it's cloud-based uh, talent that we really can't find here yet, and so we would then hire it back home and have a small office there. But um, it's the—I the, tell you—the headhunters make earn their keep. The headhunters make their money because they have to tell people. You know, part of the deal in us moving here was we had to have people and employees here paying paying Maryland tax um they can't be all over the country so all the jobs that they are looking for you know these people have to move here which really cuts down the uh the, the field yeah. um and so that can be uh that can be hard that can yeah. be tricky
1: you mentioned when marilyn reached out to you which ultimately is the reason why you're now sitting in baltimore Are you aware of any other states that offer programs like that, or is it specific to Maryland? Uh, I think Ohio
2: has one, New York has one, uh, Texas has one. Um, So, Ohio is doing a great job of of recruiting companies uh, into that state. Um, They have a have their own venture group. Uh, that the state funded, so there's a venture group there. Um, in fact, we got a term sheet from them. Uh, we had a, uh, uh, and that last paragraph said you had to move the company to Ohio. And so that's not gonna work. And at the time I was in California. So um, it, it's uh, those, those states that have those programs, if you, and, and Maryland's runs a great. I have to say Maryland's programs work whether it's investor rebates. Um, I mean, right now, after this year, we would have returned over $3 million in rebates and that we, the state, back to our investors. Um, so up to 250,000, 33% back because uh, we're a qualified Maryland business. And uh, that is a great deal. It is a great deal. Uh, so all the programs here in Maryland uh, actually work. Um, And so the incentives here are really quite strong. Um, These
1: are all non-dilutive capital, right? Some is, some isn't. Okay.
2: So, you know, some of it is grant money. Some of it is uh, they take an equity equity stake.
1: So for all those listeners right now, you having now been through this with the state of Maryland coming from California, would you advise all startups independent of where they're starting their early days to look at states that offer these programs and pursue them
2: yeah i mean raising money in california is really easy right i mean raising and hiring people in california is really easy um at least for me um but as a new as a new as a new entrepreneur um, that you don't have the contacts you don't have the intros and you don't have that that's the, these, these states, I mean, or these schools where you can hire, uh, you can license this stuff. They have incubators. I mean, uh, Hopkins is called Fast Forward. Um, they really do help these first-time CEOs, uh, you know, get their business plan together, get their pitch together. They really kind of walk them through all that. And that's, uh, you know, that's important. Um, California is tough. I mean, you you. It's competitive. It's tough. It's uh. It's uh. Um, it's not for the weak of heart and weak of mind. You you've got to have your shit together. You really have to know what you're doing. Um, now, if you do, you can walk down San Road and have you know ten checks in your pocket by the time you get to uh, Stanford Mall. But you know, it's uh. It's uh, It's punishing. And in these other states, you're, yeah, you can certainly fail, but these other states have programs that, that can support you, uh, that can incubate you, that uh, help, help uh, guide you. Um, every, every, every Christmas party I've been to, I've run into somebody from the state and go, hey, we want to talk to you, we have a program that may wanna work, or we have a job uh, sharing program, we may wanna work, because they understand that you know, getting people here is 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 tough. So uh, we kind of have a a halo on us being here. I mean, we're the we're the we're the crazy guys that were stupid enough to leave Silicon Valley to come to Baltimore, Maryland. And shit, Geo, you know, it's been one of the best things in my career what I've ever done is to come here. Um, everybody's and they embrace you. They want to help you. They want you to succeed. Um, California, you know, you're not going to see any rebate program. You're not going to see any TIF programs. You're not going to see any, you know, uh, loans or commercial loans at zero interest. You're not going to see any type of match. Uh, it just ain't going to happen. Um, and so, uh, you're, you know, I would I would recommend if if you're able to move. But just moving for the moving sake is one thing. You better make sure where you move, you got you can find the talent, which you're trying to build. Uh, I got two great schools here that have that, that generate uh, master and PhD students that come out robot ready. I mean they 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 just they just give me the wrench and they just go to work. Now they know exactly what's going on. And so. We're fortunate to be around two really good universities. And so I think, you know, like the Raleigh area is, is, is really one of these kind of areas that are really good. Uh, Austin, Austin's on fire, you know, Austin, Texas on fire. Houston where we were, the, 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 the MedTech uh, program that was down there, that was incredible. Uh, so um, some of these states have really put the money and put the effort to helping uh, these startups. And that's really what you want to look for. Uh, Ohio's got a great program. Uh, Minneapolis up there, uh, I forget what it's called, um, not Silicon Valley, but uh, something Valley, I forget. But uh, that whole corridor there between Minneapolis and Rochester uh, with Mayo Clinic and University of Minnesota and, and all that, a lot of talent, a uh, lot, of, lot, of lot of good stuff coming out of those areas. So those are good places uh, to start. Now, if you're in other states, that don't have the programs, so or you're back in California, um, you, you better have your act together and you better know somebody that can introduce you to uh, the venture guys, or consultants, or advisors, or whatever. Uh, I mean, I've got Bob Langer on my board who introduced me to, to the venture guys that are in my data room now. Uh, I got Matt Link, who's an advisor, former president of Nubasa. Uh, Helping me find my VP of sales. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I've got uh, I've got Henry Brand on my board who he's a chief of staff of neurosurgery at Hopkins. I mean, Hopkins invented neurosurgery 100 years ago, so he's like the guy that if I need anybody in neurosurgery, it's a call from Henry and that door opens up. So. I'm very fortunate to have put together a group of guys and gals that really are truly uh, 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 revolutionary. I mean, it's just amazing. It's the first time in my career that I've probably had, this has been the easiest startup I've had. Even though, yeah, it's med tech and it's scary FDA and clinical and hospitals. It's been a walk in the park. It has not been that difficult. Um, now, obviously, you have your moments of, oh my God, you know, you know cash is low. We got to get another, you know, investor. All that kind of crap. That's normal. So, I tell my guys, get used to get get used to you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's a startup's life. And it's not for everybody. Uh, you know, people try to get into it and it's, it's tough. You, you've got to have a thick skin for this stuff, and you can't take anything personal. I mean, one of the biggest things Procter Gamble taught me was that you can't fall in love with your product because somebody gotta take it out back and shoot it. And so, yeah, I, I love my little robot, but you know, if it ain't gonna work, get rid of it and start again. So, you got to make sure that you know you, you keep yourself in check on this stuff, and it's hard. It's hard. Um, it's hard for two guys and a dog that invented something and think this is the greatest valve or or uh, or uh, uh, widget or, or, or diagnostic device or whatever. And when they get out there and they realize it's not working, you know, you got to pivot. You got to call an audible. You know, just like quarterback coming up to the line. You know, defense is doing something. And you just call the play. You got to be able to throw that. You got to be able to call an Omaha, and say whatever I just told you, forget, and I'm calling a new one. And you got to be able to do that on the fly, and you got to do that every day. And that's that's the trick. I mean, there's no sitting back and just putting on autopilot. That just that ain't gonna happen. Anyway, it's a long that's a long answer to your question.
1: But that's the good stuff that we were looking for. I mean, that's the tenured experience one-liners slash philosophy that these entrepreneurs need to listen to if they're going to stay in the game and build their company. So thank you for that. I do want to rip apart in our last time together here, the actual nuances of your 15 million Series A, right? So I'm seeing here, it says um, oversubscribed Series A, including investment from Ambix Healthcare Partners. So I, I just want to touch base on a couple of things real quick. Define oversubscribed. What does that actually mean? I've seen it in Press releases, I've heard of it. What does it mean when something's oversubscribed?
2: I only wanted 12. Okay. I only wanted 12. And once one investor comes in, they all come in. So you have to kind of
1: like shut the valve off. So Is it a, is it a bad thing or a good thing to be oversubscribed? It's, it's a good thing to a point as long as your
2: valuation is, can take it. You know, everybody, everybody goes, oh, Bruce, why don't you take a $20 check? Well, you know, my, my pre was 40 I mean, you know, the more you take, the more I get. The more everybody gets diluted. So you want to not dilute yourself to oblivion on the first round. Um, at the same time, as Renee Ryan famously says, no one ever dies in dilution. So, you know, you want to bring enough cash in and you want to have enough uh, – Leeway now. uh, Now, I'm bringing another five on top of this, right? So it's a second close. So I will. uh, So I started at 12, I ended at 15, now I'm going to end at 20, and I'm cutting it there. Uh, Everybody else, I'm dumping in the series B. So, you know, you got to have enough, uh, uh, you got to have, and you have to set your valuation now. A lot of companies are gonna be hurting coming up here on their next rounds because of the economy. So what you thought your valuation was and what the metrics were before, aren't the same. So you wanna set your valuation where you're not greedy. I mean, we could have set ours at 75, brought in 20 set it at 95. And then uh, get into our series B you know, two x, three x, come out at two hundred, whatever. You know, maybe, maybe. So right now, what we need to do is figure out how to, you know, set your valuation at a reasonable level, um, so that you have these step ups. You know, in our in our business, it's between three to four x step up, maybe. You know, so we finish our round at sixty. Uh, 3x step up, we'll start a pre of you know, between 180 and and 240. You know, Maybe we start a pre of 2 200 at, at a Series B. Uh, all looks good on paper, but you know, that's two years from now. Who knows what the place is going to look like? Who knows what the economy is going to look like? So uh, you got to be able to be reasonable with your valuations. And at the same time, you have to also uh, not take, I mean, not take in so much that you dilute yourself out of the ballpark. Yeah. But you got to know your numbers, you got to know what you need to get the job done. Yeah. it's nice to have a bunch of cash. But if you're not using the cash, you just gave a whole bunch of their stock away that you're not using. So you want to use the cash that you bring in, and then you bring in more based on your milestones and performance. And miles you live and die by milestones, and you better set conservative milestones you know one of the things that a lot of uh, ceos did in high tech was they give these incredible ramps it's going to go like this, this and it's going to take off these hockey stick things well you know what? hockey stick never happens you know it's a it's it's going to be like this you know you're going to have ups and downs and you have to forecast those ups and downs in such a way that you don't look like you're out of control you know because it's, going to, it's always going to go like this and uh it's never a smooth you know, slow, and so uh, that's where venture guys. I mean, that's where that's where the CEOs get in trouble with the venture guys by making promises and and forecasts and predictions that there's no way they can hit those type of things. So yeah.
1: So last question that I want to just focus and dig in on is the, the 15 million itself. If we rip apart that, I mean, how long did it take you to raise? When did you really start? When did you really close? Well, there was a start and a stop.
2: So I started it in 19 and then stopped it because COVID hit and it was dark for a a while. So, you know, we started it back up in 2021 and closed it. So it
1: took about six months. There you go. So six months, which is, I would say, uh, solid where it's not too quick, but it's also not dragging out for a year or more, right? So that's a solid, that's a solid amount of time um, and typically an average for someone who's been there and done that before, which is good. In the 15 million, was it a bunch of recurring investors or, or already existing investors? I mean, I see that Ambix Health Partners, which correct me if I'm wrong, they're they're an institutional fund. Uh, so was this a combination of angels? Family offices and institutional investors, or what did this fit this, uh, yeah. this 15 million consist of?
2: Yeah, it's it's angels, family office, and, and institutional. So it's it's all three. So um, family offices seem to be the, uh, I don't want to say easiest, but the most uh, understanding group these days to get funds out of. Um, Why is that? I, there's just a, you know, some of these family offices have a ton of money uh, and um, you can get them to understand what you're doing or they're alumni or whatever. And it's, uh, and it's mostly referral. Um, uh, if someone's referring me into a family office and they, they know the guy really well, they trust the guy, I already, have, I already have the benefit of the doubt that I know what I'm doing. So all I have to do is I like, present my presentation and what I'm doing, and most likely they, just, they always invest. So I have, a, I have a great history with family offices. I have a uh, 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 so big eight, also super angels. Super angels come in who have done it before, understand the, uh, the model, uh, and you know, can write a big check. So, uh, so, so yeah, I have a, a combination of those people uh, and how, how that's put together. Um, you know we all want to have just you know one or two you know venture guys come in and they take the whole thing but this is afforded me and and it's and that's what I would have done I would have brought in two venture guys in 2019 and be done and my cap table would be this big Um, instead I had to continue to go to family offices and angels through 1920 and uh, that was something I really didn't want to do, but I'm glad I did it because I met some really great people and I've got some really good investors that I can just call them up anytime and say, hey, I need X amount, you know, sure, we'll have it and we'll wire it tomorrow. So it's a uh, it's a a great group if you can tap into it. And uh, and, I've, and also the Japanese are coming in, so uh, they have expressed tons of interest in what we do, and they seem to be a whole lot more reasonable than the US venture guys. <laughs> um, and especially in medtech, medtech, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be fetching rocks, and you got to be careful with the rock fetching. Um, you know. You don't have FDA clearance, okay? And you know, so, so that eliminates a huge fear of investors. So now you're pre-FDA. So now you're going to the higher risk type of investors. Um, and that takes some skill to find them and sort them out. Um, there's a lot of guys that want to write a $10,000 check and I kind of say, know yeah, this is a bigger play guy. I'm sorry. You know, it's, it's not going to work, but you, you've got to be able to play uh, in a, in an area where you don't have those three letters yet. Um, My series B list of investors is enormous and it's who's who of venture guys out there that have expressed interest, but I have to get cleared and I have to get in these hospitals and I have to show that the, the surgeons are using it, and the model is working. So there's a lot of milestones that 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 uh, we have to go through. And so that's the hard part: is you're in tech and you don't have your FDA clearance. You are slugging it out, and trying to get enough cash to get your product built, to get your product product certified and verified, to get it cleared. To get to that hill, to get to that,
0: that, that, that uh, to
2: get out of that valley of death, uh, and that's the whole thing. That's that's tough. That's I, I will not say that's an easy lift uh, for these for these for these folks. Uh, family offices uh, can support you. Uh, angels, big angels, can support you because invariably, along that period of time, you're gonna have a low bank account we you know we did we do or we did you know we got to pick up the phone and say hey i need you know i need a million dollars i need you know whatever um you know can you wire it and uh, and, and those kinds of things so you're going to need you're going to need more than just the venture guys and if you and if you need cash or the venture guys they're going to burn you they're going to they're going to burn your ass on valuation, they're going to burn you on everything. At least the family offices and the angels would say, okay, here's a convertible note, And it run. Okay, Bruce, you're doing a great job. Love you, and those kind of things. So, and you got to communicate with these guys. I read a quarterly newsletter of of the, of the condition of the company and where we're going and what's happening. And so I'm in constant communication with these guys. And so when it comes down time to, to for the ask, if I need them, they're there. So that's kind of how that how that plays out for me at Galen. That's how it plays out. My prior lives, which is one or two or three venture folks. And that was it. You know, I didn't have what I have today of a luxury calling up a family office and saying, can you can you wire me, whatever. And that's and you do need that sometimes.
1: Yeah. You do need that. You, you've touched on this and this is going to be my, my close here. The nuances between angels, family offices, and venture capitalism, you've just shed some light on that. But I want to ask the direct question. In terms of a medtech entrepreneur pitching to these subsets of investors, is there a difference in the pitch and motivation? Is pitching to a family office versus an angel different? And then is there a a major pivot from the story that you're telling to the angels and family offices versus the institutional professional investors
2: yeah the working backwards the institutional guys in the in the vcs i talk to have mintic experience so when i tell them there's a gap in the market in robotics that no one's addressing they get it they get it when i talk to angels and to family offices i might as well be talking to someone off the street they don't know anything about robotics they they heard about it Uh, you know some guy may have had a hip or knee or replaced and uh, so so the so the level of detail is far less where i kind of have to start from scratch and kind of introduce them to what robotics is and how it works and what's going and you know, where, why we're, why we're, who we are and what we're addressing. So, uh, and the family offices are all over the place. They'll, they'll do med tech, they'll do fintech, they'll do high tech, they'll do, you know, farming equipment, you know, I mean, there, it's all over the place. So you have to, uh, there's persuasion involved. You have to persuade the angels and the and the family offices that this is this is really what's happening. This is a trend, and I've done this before, and we're out of Hopkins, and we're not a bunch of flakes. And you know, so you're moving them along. Your institutional guys they see the John Hopkins logo on my on my slides, they see who's on my board. Uh, they automatically can size me up really quick um so you know the big institutional guys have also said bruce i love what you're doing i just you know i can't you know my minimum checks 20 um, thank you very much uh i'll see i maybe see you may be wrong you know um, but they automatically get it and so it's easier pitching the venture guys that have med tech venture partners that understand this more so than anything. That's that's the big that's that's the easy thing. Um, due diligence, the the institutional guys have analysts that will go in your data room and live there for months digging around and asking you questions you never even knew existed in your data room. Um, where the family offices and the angels really don't—I mean, one or two will go in your data room, but you know they, they want to see a set of financials, and that's about it. Um, so it's a, the due diligence is not as uh, in depth. rigorous, uh, rigorous
1: uh, as it would be in the venture guys. So, Batman, I, I have to say, uh, super comfortable in terms of your ability to speak to entrepreneurship and and also leadership in in early stage startup companies. And I've personally learned a lot. I've been fortunate to hear a lot of these stories in person. I'm glad that we can finally share these with the community. I mean, we've learned what is it like to actually leave the the helm of the tech world over in the Bay Area and then follow this nuanced opportunity for, for funding a startup company by moving to a state that has a program. So we learned about that. I love the fact of what you just broke down in terms of the nuances and differences of pitching to angels versus family offices versus institutional guys. And even just the stories that you told about transferring from high tech to med tech and also how that's even benefited you as well. We learned about DSAS, which I think is fascinating. I look forward to uh, you branding that and owning that and coming out with that officially when that happens. And also obviously the success of your series B. So um, I wanna say thank you very much Bruce Wayne, aka Batman Lekorowicz, who is the president and CEO of Galen Robotics, currently based in Baltimore, for being on the MedTech Money podcast, where we have officially demystified raising and investing capital in medtech. Thank you so, so much. Far. We demystified it so far. <laughs> exactly, it's a work in progress. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Bruce. Thanks, buddy. I'll talk to you. I'll see you next conference. Absolutely. Take care. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at infoprojectmedtech.com. At Thanks for listening and have a great day.